0: Good evening. Good to be back with you all. If you would uh, please take out your copy of the scriptures, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba. It is a fascinating and gripping and dramatic story, but it is also a, a tragic and serious and sobering story. It's a story about what one Puritan called the sinfulness of sin. So we're going to be thinking about tonight. So let's start uh, by just going to the Lord in prayer. And then after that, I will read the entirety of the chapter. Father, we need your help that we might read this word, hear this word, understand this word, apply this word, and then Live this word out for your glory. And that is not something that we can do in our own strength. That is something that the Holy Spirit must work in our hearts. And so we ask that, Lord, you would do exactly that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Samuel chapter eleven. This is the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your hand against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord." So here's what I want us to do tonight. First, I want us to go over just what happens in this story. Uh, Yes, it is a well-known story for many of us, but there's a lot of details here that I don't want us to miss if we're gonna really get a feel for what's going on in David's heart. And then I wanna think about how we might apply this story. Like how ought we as God's people to live differently as a result of this narrative? So I'm going to give you four warnings about sin that come from this story. So first, the story itself. Starting in verse 1, Israel finds itself at war with the Ammonites. And if you actually go back to chapter 10, you'll see that this is a continuation of the battle that's going on in that chapter. Uh, They are trying to take the Ammonite capital of Rabbah by siege. And so Joab, that's David's general... A military commander. Joab goes and the soldiers go. But King David remains back at Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, David finds himself walking around his roof one day. And that's when he sees a woman, a Bathsheba. And we're told in verse 3 that she is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now let's not just skip over that as a, a typical kind of genealogical introduction because this carries a lot more weight than just that. Uh, Eliam, uh, we are told later in the book that Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, is one of the 30. He's one of David's mighty men. And Ahithophel, who is Eliam's father, well, he is one of David's counselors. And of course, Uriah the Hittite, you probably know, he is another one of the 30. He's another one of the mighty men. And so Bathsheba is not just a nobody from nowhere. She is the daughter of one of David's most faithful soldiers, the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted counselors, and of course the wife of another one of David's most trusted soldiers. But David doesn't care about any of that, at least not at this point. Really, there are only two things that matter to David about Bathsheba at this point. Number one, her husband Uriah is off at war. He is fighting the Ammonites at Rabbah like the rest of the army. And number two, look at what it says about her at the end of verse two. She was very beautiful. Literally, it says that she was very good to look upon. And so given those two things... Verse four, David takes her. And right there, we have the beginning of David's great sin. But really, when it comes to sin, there's nothing new under the sun. Because think about what just happened there. David saw something, that something was good in his eyes, and then he takes it. And thus he falls into great sin but we've heard that story somewhere before. Saw, good, took, right? Those are words straight from Genesis chapter three. That's exactly what Eve does. And so David joins Adam and Eve in taking what God has forbidden. Back then it was taking fruit. Here it's taking Uriah's wife. I want you to notice how fast paced the action is here. Uh, The narrative doesn't say anything about how David was feeling or how Bathsheba was feeling or any of their dialogue or conversation or interaction. Rather, it is like rapid fire, matter of fact, action verbs. Verses two to four, right? Sent and took, came, lay, returned. But up to that point, well, no big deal for King David. What happens in the king's palace ought to stay in the king's palace, and nobody has to know anything. Until, of course, Bathsheba drops the bomb. I am pregnant. That is the only line that she gets in the entire chapter. But that is the line that changes the course of everything. Because now David's in trouble. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that Well, adultery was a big deal, right? It was a capital offense according to God's law. And yeah, it's highly unlikely that the great King David, who was as loved as he was, he had like a 99.9% approval rating. Uh, It's highly unlikely that David would have been put to death by any court in Israel. But adultery was still a very, very big deal. Like at the very least, it would have brought shame. It would have brought humiliation. It would have brought dishonor. It would have tarnished what was otherwise a pretty much spotless record of public legacy for David. And so David goes into cover up mode. He sends Uriah, or he sends for Uriah from the battlefield. Look at verse 7. And he asks him how General Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Now we might just read over that, but don't miss just how strange of a question that is. Like why in the world would David send for Uriah, one of David's mighty men, right? A renowned soldier, surely someone of rank in the army. Like why would you send for Uriah to ask such meaningless questions? Like David's got messengers. He's got messengers who bring him news from the battlefield every single day. Why would you pull someone so valuable off the field, make him come all the way back to Jerusalem just for this rather meaningless update? Well, the answer, of course, is that he doesn't care about the update. He doesn't care about those questions. He just wants Uriah to go home. But Uriah refuses. He instead sleeps at the door of the king's house with the other servants. Why? Well, the answer is in verse 11. He says, Our nation's at war. Joab, the soldiers, they're all out there in tents in the fields of Ammon. Like, how am I going to go home? How am I going to go and sleep in my own bed? You see, David fully expected Uriah to be a man ruled by his passions. You thought that I was altogether like you. But Uriah, well, Uriah shows himself throughout this chapter to be a man of integrity, a man of honor, a man of character and commitment, right? one who prioritizes the Lord and his cause. He's often called Uriah the Hittite, drawing particular attention to his foreign roots. But this man is not just a Hittite. He is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. You might say, at least in this chapter, Uriah is the man after God's own heart. And so in his commitment to his fellow soldiers, in his commitment to the cause of God, Uriah declares, verse 11, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Referring to being with Bathsheba. And you just kind of have to wonder there as David is hearing Uriah say those words, And is there even a little tinge of conviction there? Because if David had the courage and the resolve to say that very thing all the way back in verse two when he first saw Bathsheba, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. See, if David had said that then, well, none of this is even necessary. As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this. This And so plan A is a miserable failure. And so David turns then to plan B, which is even worse because now he's basically trying to get Uriah drunk enough to abandon his discipline and his convictions. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. That's Habakkuk 2.15. But David could care less about what Habakkuk would write centuries later. He just wants to cover his sin. once again, Uriah's integrity is the foil to David's plan. Once again, Uriah doesn't go down to his house. To plan A, miserable failure. Plan B, miserable failure. Now David turns to plan C, and it just keeps getting worse, because now he's planning to have Uriah killed in battle. And did you notice as we read the chapter, the kind of Cruel twist of irony there. David sends the letter with the instructions for Uriah's murder to General Joab by the hand of Uriah. Uriah is unwittingly carrying his own death sentence, which tells us what? That tells us how much David trusted Uriah's character. He knows that Uriah is not gonna open this confidential letter. Why not? Because he's not supposed to. That's the kind of man Uriah is, and that's the kind of man that David is trying to murder. But this time, this time the plan works perfectly. Joab and the Ammonites, they do exactly what David wants. They do his dirty work for him, and Uriah is killed in the battle. And so Joab now sends a messenger back to King David with that news. Just think about what he tells the messenger there. Basically, he says, Listen, if David gives you any heat, any trouble about the number of casualties that we suffer today, you could just tell him, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now, put yourself in the messenger's shoes. That's really strange. Like, of course, David as the king, he's going to be upset at the number of casualties that we suffer today. But how is the fact that one of his most trusted and valiant soldiers is dead? Like, how is me telling him news of Uriah's death supposed to assuage his anger? That doesn't make sense unless news of Uriah's death is all that David really cares about. If others die in the process, Collateral damage. It's kind of a necessary sacrifice. No big deal. And if you're familiar with the narratives of 1st and 2nd Samuel, especially 1 Samuel, then you'll realize just how different David is here. This is the same David who earlier refused to put out his hand against King Saul. Why? Because of his integrity because of his uprightness, because of his convictions. He always wanted to do what was right over what was expedient. That was David. This just seems like an entirely different person here. Now look at David's response to the messenger. Do not let this matter displease you for the sword now devours one and now another to the uninformed messenger. This messenger has no idea what's going on here. Maybe that sounds like wisdom. Maybe that sounds like leadership. Maybe that sounds like poise in a time of trial. But for us readers, like we know the backstory. We know what's really going on here. We can see right through that. This is just cold hearted satisfaction. He got exactly what he wanted. Uriah is dead. So David takes Bathsheba and he marries her. I want you to look at how verse 26 is phrased. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. Let me tell you a much easier way you could have phrased that. When Bathsheba heard that Uriah was dead but that's not what the text says. It's as if the author is trying to say to us, say, hey, listen, Bathsheba, she is not just any woman that David took. She is the wife of Uriah. And as a matter of fact, the entire chapter, the narrator never once refers to her by her name. He only refers to her as the woman or the wife of Uriah. But hey, listen, It's okay because David, nobody else else knows and nobody else is gonna know, which not only means that you're in the clear, but there's an added bonus here in that he becomes a hero in the eyes of the people because of his marrying of Bathsheba. Because in the eyes of the public, well, here's King David graciously, kindly taking in the widow of one of his fallen soldiers. said, so, wow, look at King David, extending loving kindness to one of his mighty men like that, honoring him in his death by caring for his widow like that. A religion that's pure and undefiled is this, to care for widows in their need. And you look at David, wow, what a guy, what a godly king. And so would you look at that? The chapter comes to a close and it looks like David's gotten away with everything. Like his cover-ups and his schemes and his plots, like they actually work. And as a bonus, not only is his sin not gonna be found out, but now he strengthened his legacy. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of justice. He is the one who always does what is right. And all is well that ends well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul goes through some Old Testament stories of great sin that the Israelites have committed. And David's sin with Bathsheba is not there because Paul's more focused on kind of the national sin of Israel. But I think the same principle applies Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 and 12. These things, the recording of these sins, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall they were written down for our instruction. So why would the lowest moment of the greatest king in Israel's history, like why would that even be recorded? Why wasn't this just swept under the rug? Why wasn't this just airbrushed away? Well, it's at least in part as an example for us, it's at least in part for our instruction so that we might learn about sin and so that we might take heed lest we too fall. So as our takeaways from this narrative, how does this story change how we ought to live? Let me leave you with four warnings from this story about sin. Ways in which we ought to be instructed and then ways in which we ought to take heed lest we too fall. Warning number one from this narrative is that sin can snowball very quickly. Sin can snowball very, very quickly. I think part of what makes this narrative so fascinating and so tragic is just watching how rapidly sin progresses. Because the chapter starts with David seeing Bathsheba. But then it continues with that Initial glance becoming a stare. And then that stare becoming an inquiry. And then as James tells us, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And so he takes her. But then look at how sin just snowballs very quickly because that then leads to a cover-up. The adultery needs to be hidden. And so that leads to all kinds of lying and deception And that ultimately, of course, culminates in the murder of a righteous man. Here's what I want you to think about. Suppose you had gone up to David at the very beginning of the chapter, the very beginning of chapter 11, and you had said to him, hey, what do you think if I went and I killed Uriah the Hittite for you? Would you like me to do that? How would David have responded he would have been outraged. One of my mighty men, you want to go kill one of my mighty men for what? How dare you even think that? He might even have you put to death. Like there's absolutely no way that David could have envisioned murdering Uriah at the beginning of the chapter. But that's what can happen with sin. Sin can lead to more sin which can lead to more sin, which can lead to more sin. And all of a sudden, all it takes is one chapter for a lustful glance at a woman to snowball into cold-blooded murder. So given how many steps of like descending into more and worse sin there are in this chapter, maybe the most tragic thing in this narrative is how many opportunities David had to stop. Like how many chances he had to escape. When he first saw Bathsheba, he could have ran back into his house. When he inquired about Bathsheba, and he finds out that she's a married woman. We could have thought it through and said, This is this is not worth it, never mind even after the adultery, he could have heeded his conscience. I've done something very wrong. I need to come clean. After the first two times that his plans are frustrated by Uriah's uprightness and integrity, he could have realized his folly and repented. And even after Uriah was murdered, he could have confessed his sin, but no, at every single step, as his sin snowballs into greater and greater sin, David continues to harden his heart and refuses to repent. And as a result, by the end of the chapter, he finds himself in a place that he surely could not have imagined himself being at the beginning. Perhaps, perhaps this evening, As I'm describing this path of sin, this downward spiral of sin, like how sin can so easily lead to more sin, maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about right now because you're seeing it play out in your life. Like you've been in unrepentant sin and you just find yourself progressing deeper and deeper and deeper. We're like a little bit of hanging out with ungodly people here and there. Well, now you've plunged head-on into all kinds of worldliness and ungodliness. Or just a little bit of compromise in terms of what you look at on the computer. And now that's quickly becoming a full-fledged pornography addiction. Or a little bit of flirting here and there with your coworker at the office. That's putting you on the fast track to all out adultery. I really hope that is not the case with you. But if it is, if it is, may this text serve you as a stern warning. A warning that sin can snowball very quickly. David was so blinded by his sin that he couldn't see that truth. He just blindly followed his sin to its tragic conclusion But I tell you that whatever you've done, like however far you already are in your sin, if you've had your eyes open to this truth, you can flee now. The next step of greater and more sin is never inevitable. It's never necessary. So if this describes your life right now, I beg you to flee. I beg you to repent now before it gets even worse. Warning number one, sin can snowball quickly. Warning number two is that sin is no respecter of persons. Sin doesn't care who you are. Like as we're reading about sin in this chapter, as we're reading about adultery and deception and murder and lying, disregard for human life, cold-hearted hypocrisy, Like, as we're reading about this, we need to remember that all of this is being perpetrated by David. David is the man after God's own heart. David is the greatest king in Israel's history. He is the king to whom every other king after him is going to be compared. David is the king in covenant with God. He is one of the most revered saints of the Old Testament, David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote half the psalms. He wrote things like, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. He's the guy who wrote things like, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. He's the guy who wrote things like, you make known to me the path of life, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like this is a man who was close to his God. To think that even he was capable of the things in this story, that even he could fall to sin and temptation like that, that should be a humbling, sobering thought for every person in this room. Like it does not matter who you are. It does not matter how you serve the Lord. It does not matter how long you've been saved. It doesn't really matter how closely you're walking with the Lord in this particular season because sin is no respecter of persons. Any of us, and I mean any of us, apart from God's restraining grace, could find ourselves committing sin that we might presently think is unfathomable. But I think this is really important. That should not create in us a sense of despondency or or resignation. Rather, what it should produce in us is a crying out from the bottom of our hearts for God's grace. Lord, please don't leave me to myself. Please guard my heart Oh, great God, help me to live a life that is dependent on your grace. Our Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Warning number two, sin is no respecter of persons. Warning number three, sin often leaves a trail of destruction 2 Samuel, if you were to just read the book from front to back, 2 uh, Samuel is like a tale of two books. Right? Chapters 1 through 10, uh, they chronicle this glorious rise of David. Uh, his kingship, his, his throne is secure. His enemies are gone. His kingdom, the borders are safe. He reigns with justice. His legacy, like everybody loves him. He can do no wrong. That's 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 10. 2 Samuel chapters 12 through 24, it's like the polar opposite. It just seems like one hardship after another, one tragedy after another, one disaster after another. And that which stands in between those two polar opposites is 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's when day turns to night, a triumph turns to disaster, and so we see that sin often leaves a trail of destruction. Because even as it seems like David has gotten away with everything here at the end of the chapter, it seems like his sin is going to have no repercussions at all. Well, that's just because we're, we're just getting started here. The rest of the book of 2 Samuel is about David's life completely unraveling. Like everything that he built up over decades in terms of his kingship, in terms of his kingdom, in terms of his legacy, like all of that is gonna come crashing down because he would lose his kingship to a rebellion within his own family. And his kingdom is gonna undergo a civil war, one in which he's going to lose his beloved son. And his legacy is forever gonna be tarnished. And so again, Brothers and sisters, let me appeal to you in this room who currently find yourselves in hidden, unrepentant sin. Maybe it's specifically the sin of adultery. Maybe it's something else entirely. And let me say this, as a guest preacher, like I have no idea what is going on in most of your lives. And so this is not meant to target anybody in this room, but you know, and more importantly, God knows. And so whatever it is, you're cherishing some sin, you're, you're clinging on to something, you're, you're hiding something, thinking that you're gonna get away with it, everything's gonna be okay. But you're unwittingly heading down this path of destruction I pray that you would see this text, this passage, this sermon as God graciously calling you to repent, that you might be spared of the destruction that you're laying up for yourself. Oh, how David in just a few short chapters, having seen and witnessed firsthand the destruction that sin causes, like how David would have given up everything, the world and everything in it, to have things just go back to the way they were in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one. Warning number three, sin often leaves a trail of destruction. Warning number four, most importantly, is that sin displeases the Lord. Sin displeases the Lord. Here's the thing about 2 Samuel chapter 11, It's a crazy chapter. It's really twisted and wicked things that David does here. But at the end of the day, like, it kind of all works out for David. Because Uriah's dead. And Bathsheba, well, she's now his wife. His sin is hidden. No one's ever going to suspect anything. And as a matter of fact, not only is nobody ever going to suspect anything, but David's now actually hailed as a hero, celebrated as the gracious king of justice and righteousness. And it was like 26 and a half verses later. Well, everybody lives happily ever after. But not quite. Because there is still that last half verse the last half verse that we've kind of skipped over thus far, but by far and away the most important, impactful, significant sentence in the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. One thing you'll notice as you kind of scan your eyes back through the chapter, the first 26 and a half verses, is that God has curiously and conspicuously been absent. In everything. Now, if you're David, it's exactly what you want. But as Ralph Davis writes, the silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. Or to put it another way, we ought never to assume that just because God allows sin to happen, that he doesn't care. He cares. The thing that David had done displease the Lord. Two important things about that word displease. Uh, Number one, uh, the English word displeased probably isn't strong enough there. Uh, The Hebrew literally says, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. But second, suppose we stay with what the ESV does here, and we stay with the word displease Well, do you remember where we saw that word just a little bit earlier? Well, look two verses back. David is speaking to Joab through a messenger about what happened in the murder of Uriah and look at what he says. Do not let this matter displease you. Or more literally, do not let this matter be evil in your sight. You see that? David is saying both to Joab and his own conscience, don't let this be evil. Don't let this be evil in your sight. Meanwhile, God is seeing all of this unfold right before his omniscient eyes. And regardless of what David is saying, don't let this be evil in your sight. Well, it is evil in God's sight. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that is what matters. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing. All of the other warnings that we've talked about, they are true. That sin can snowball rather quickly. That sin is no respecter of persons. That sin leaves a trail of destruction. But none of those things in and of themselves matter in the least in comparison to this fourth warning. That sin displeases the Lord. Because if God doesn't care about sin, well, really, we don't have to care about sin either. We probably just do whatever we want. But the Bible is very clear that God cares about sin. It displeases him. It is evil in his sight. He hates sin. And that, more than the fact that it can snowball quickly, more than the fact that it is no respecter of persons, more than the fact that it leaves a trail of destruction, that is what makes sin so terrible. Because the first three warnings, well, they primarily deal with earthly consequences, or consequences in this life. But this last warning, well, its consequences stretch into eternity. Because the fact that sin is evil in God's sight, that means that all of us, as those who have sinned, and perhaps our sin is not that of adultery and murder, but we have all sinned against a holy God. And that means that all of us deserve judgment. All of us deserve wrath. All of us deserve an eternity in hell. And that's worse than any earthly consequence like an eternity in hell makes any earthly consequence seem like a a slap on the wrist. Friends, our sin displeases the Lord. And it's only when we understand that truth, like our own depravity, how evil our sin is in God's sight, it's only when we really grasp that That we then begin to truly understand the sweetness of the gospel. The preciousness of what God has done for us in Christ. Because you see, in the gospel, God takes that sin that he hates so much, that is so evil in his sight, and he puts it on his beloved son. He punishes that sin in his son, Jesus. So that we who are guilty of much sin that is evil in God's sight will we'll never know the judgment that we deserve. And God pours out his wrath on Jesus so that great sinners like me and like you and like King David can be forgiven. As I realize, this, uh, this sermon has been a hard sermon because it's dealt so heavily with sin. I don't apologize for that because this chapter deals so heavily with sin. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, we ought not to leave tonight without clinging on to this precious truth, right? That the God in whose eyes sin is so evil loved his people and sent his son to atone for that very sin in those people. That's the gospel. And that is the main point of the scriptures from beginning to end. Every chapter of the Bible, even Second Samuel chapter 11. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are heavy thinking about the sinfulness of sin, the seriousness of sin, the destructiveness of sin, But Father, our hearts are filled thinking of the salvation that you have provided for sinners in Christ. Undeserving sinners like us that we might be forgiven of that horrible sin. Father, we pray for any in this room who do not know you. Pray that you would grant to them salvation even today. And Father, we pray for any in this room who are just in a lifestyle of Habitual unrepentant sin, or that today would be the day that you would grant repentance, draw them to repentance, or that they might find forgiveness in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.